Hello, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. On this series, we explore the opportunities and challenges facing the Higher Education Business Office. I'm Liz Clark, Vice President for Policy and Research at Nakubo, and I am delighted for this first Nakubo in Brief podcast of 2024 to be joined by Emily Brock from the Government Finance Officers Association to talk about what we're expecting in Washington in this new year. Emily is director of GFOA's Federal Liaison Center. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much, Liz. It's my pleasure to be here. Emily, uh, first, can you tell us a little bit more about GFOA and your role there? Sure. So the Government Finance Officers Association represents over 23,000 finance officers across the country. And finance officers means um, everywhere, soup to nuts, anybody who has anything to do with capital planning or accounting or uh, strategic financial planning. Um, and so that's probably why we have such a, an enormous membership is because, you know, we tend to make sure that when we produce best practices or resources, that they're understandable for cities, for counties, for states, but also for nonprofits, for universities, for other instrumentalities of the state. So that when you kind of talk to us about, you know, what's best practice in finance, it's ubiquitous. It's across the public sector. Now, because of that, we also depend on a, a lot of financing and funding tools that are provided for us in Washington, D.C. And so that's why I'm here. That's why uh, that my organization has me here in Washington, D.C., is to watch out for that, to make sure that we protect those uh, uh, fundamental financing and funding tools that are so important for public entities across the country. Thanks, Emily. I know that some of our Nakubo members are actually also GFOA members. And sometimes I know that uh, they'll get an email from Emily Brock, and I know I need to stay on my feet to figure out what uh, GFOA has folks excited about from one day to the next. One way I do that is through a network that you lead and organize called the Public Finance Network. And can you share with the audience a little bit of information about that group? It's actually my pride and joy. In Washington, it's really hard to get something done on your own, especially if you're representing just a, a, a wide variety of public officials across the country. And so what we found here at GFOA is that while we have a lot of mutual members, you and me, Liz, we also have a lot of mutual members at things like public works or public power, or even in the cities and the states and the governors and the treasurers are all very interested in the work that we do. So the public finance network meets one every other week. We actually are closer friends than that. We often see each other more times than that because we tend to go to the Hill together. We tend to advocate together. We tend to be together. And so I am very grateful for our partnership with GFOA and Akubo and the 43 other issuer organizations that meet with us. It's a terrific organization, and I'm, I'm so glad you bring folks together. There are so many issues that do overlap, so many unique sectors. I know that as colleges and universities, we often work closely with the hospitals because they're a unique nonprofit sector that is also divided between both public financed entities and privately financed nonprofit entities. And, and together, we are all part of that public finance network. And uh, with that PFN, there's 
lately no shortage of issues to talk about in terms of what's happening or not in Washington. And Emily, I, I really like the way you tend to think about the issues that we share, uh, that there are financing issues and there are funding issues. Let's maybe start with the financing issues. As you think about what's on your plate for the coming year, and you think about the financing issues, which I believe are mostly the bond-related issues. What's on your mind? What are you worried about? Yeah, usually thinking about financing issues in the context of bonds, but it doesn't necessarily have to be bonds. They can be privately placed debt or borrowing that you do through banks. And so what we pay attention to is not only our relationship in using a fundamental tool that is the municipal bond, that is a protected tax exemption that Congress affords us every time they make a budget. In fact, it costs them to provide that tax exemption for the bonds that we issue. And so because of that, we recognize and realize altogether that the fragility of the financing structure, because it depends on Congress reaffirming their faith that municipal bonds actually help to support infrastructure across our country. So we're constantly, constantly watching that. We're trying to make sure that uh, members on the Ways and Means Committee, that is the tax writing committee of the House of Representatives, continues to maintain that promise. You know, but also we tend to work with borrowing with banks and banks too are heavily regulated and legislated here in the Capitol, things that we have to look out for there is our unfettered access to not just tax-exempt bond, but also taxable bonds and tax-exempt IRS-enhanced bonds. Then what I'm talking about there is bank-qualified debt, where we can sort of replicate that tax exemption with small banks through small university borrowing. So we're watching all of that stuff. We're trying to make sure that each Congress, we have the opportunity to enhance each one of those tools uh, for colleges and universities and the, the public sector broadly. You know, I'd also like to say there are a few things that tend to be decisively political that find their way into the financing conversation. One of the things recently that's kind of crept in is the concept of ESG and how ESG plays a role in financing, whether they are risks that have a nexus to the credit, they are things that are in our environment that should be communicated to our investors. You know, once something comes inside the beltway, it becomes inherently political. But for the finance office of colleges and universities, ESG is very practical. Uh, how are you incorporating ESG into your procurement schemas? How are you thinking about ESG risks in your development plans, in your capital development plans? So just know that while Congress tends to maybe light the stick of dynamite and call it ESG, GFOA understands and continues to communicate along with Nakubo that ESG is just a practical thing in our environment and we're continuing to do what's best for our local institution at our local level. ESG is such a big nebulous area to define and it's really been grabbed as a political issue but it but all of the elements that incorporate ESG concerns have long been important to colleges and universities in so many ways and both from the angle of are you impacted by an environmental risk factor everything from hurricanes to wildfire and wildfire smoke and more to um, investing in uh, sustainable energy or alternative forms of energy. And uh, business officers have long been interested in this area because 
more often than not, investing in alternative forms of energy not only have a beneficial climate impact, but they also have an energy savings impact, a financial savings to the institution. So it's an area that I think we'll continue to have to grapple with as a political challenge uh, in conversations in Washington, but nonetheless, incredibly important for us to be thinking about and responding to, especially as regulatory agencies start thinking more about ESG and how they are going to be looking at ESG-related questions and their regulatory oversight. And what's most important, I think, about ESG is, as to your point, Liz, it means lots of different things to lots of different affected stakeholders. And so what's especially important from the colleges and universities is that there's continued conversation with them and their members of Congress about what it means to them. Yes. Emily, I I do want to go back to one of the comments you made about tax-exempt bonds being a protected tax exemption, that uh, instead of building buildings that the federal investment in infrastructure for public entities has been through tax-exempt bonds. But I wouldn't say it's always been looked at as something to protect. Uh, There have been actions in the not-too-distant past where Congress has slashed some opportunities that have been available. They have proposed eliminating access for some entities. And I guess as we look at this 2024 calendar year, and the tax reform that we may see in the 2025 calendar year. What are you concerned about when it comes to maintaining the protection of access to tax-exempt bonds? Well, you know, to your point, Liz, nothing is certain. Nothing is certain in, in congressional negotiations. And one of the important dynamics of Congress right now is that it it is a divided Congress. So we have Republican House and a Democratic Senate, and we have a Democrat sitting in the White House. So because of that, there's a lot of negotiation just to lift even the easiest bills through. And I I would say this is not easy, easy, but spending bills in Congress have never been this hard. <laughs> that I can say. Uh, right now, we are sitting at the beginning of January where there's actually a, a, a bill that precedes January 1st that says, if you don't have a permanent spending bill in place, then sequestration effects are going to start when the funding bills actually get passed. Now, uh, frustratingly, we're not sure exactly how those cuts are actually going to affect each one of those spending bills. There's 12 spending bills. They're all going to be affected in a different way. But one thing we do know is what sequestration means. And that means that Congress and the administration have to figure out how they are going to slash 1% of spending across the board. That in and of itself is enough to keep our eyes uh, hyper-focused on what the next spending bills are going to look like, where they're going to come from. Of course, there's going to be um, places that we're concentrating trading. But, you know, something as vulnerable as the tax exemption could be something that's held up to the plate here. So we need to just make sure that we focus our energy on where those cuts are going to be, make sure that we understand, have our fingers on the pulse and make sure to tell the colleges and universities story um, as they're developing these spending plans. Without a doubt, a lot of complicating factors with this really 
difficult appropriations and budget situation with a couple of deadlines looming ahead of us. Emily, let's turn to the uh, funding side of the equation. I mentioned that the federal government doesn't necessarily build buildings, but in fact, over the past few years, there have been a couple of major infrastructure investments by the federal government. Can you talk a little bit about what you're watching and what some of your concerns are? There are a couple of administration-supported bills right now that we've been focusing on. ARPA, which was our friend of yesteryear, is almost in the rearview window with spending or at least obligating the fund's deadline looming of December 31st, 2024. So at the end of this year, ARPA has to be obligated. Now, what's interesting is that there was another bill that passed in the midst of ARPA called the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act, or IIJA. It's about $600 billion in infrastructure. We're about halfway through that covered period. What that means is, at this point, they've given half of it away, but there's still another half to go. So we're trying to make sure that public entities across the country understand the potential for future grants that are identical to the last three years of IIJA for the future. That's something that people shouldn't take advantage of. This is certainly something that is in our environment. It is due. It is funded. And we certainly are keeping our eyes focused on that. But the other thing I would like to say about IIJA is that just reading some of the White White House information about where sequestration might have might occur, sequestration might impact that IIJA or the bipartisan nature of the um, distribution of those funds. The other thing that we're looking at, and Liz, this kind of loops back into the ESG conversation, is the Inflation Reduction Act, probably the worst named bill of the past couple of years, <laughs> because it has nothing to do with inflation reduction, but it does have everything to do with investments in clean clean energy and renewable energy. And so there are different parts of that bill, lots of different parts of that bill. The the one that is most evident to us is sort of retail customers is you get a credit for certain clean energy, clean energy vehicles. Well, if you kind of multiply that by a lot, then we're talking about colleges and universities where maybe you have fleets of vehicles and larger um, electric vehicle investments that you're doing on your property. So there are benefits to that, of course, that are embedded in the Inflation Reduction Act. But the other thing that we're looking at in the Inflation Reduction Act really goes to your point, Liz, about campuses that have clean energy um, directives or maybe timelines or maybe goals in mind about how can you convert fossil fuels dependence into sort of a more clean energy infrastructure on your campus. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act actually helps to support that. The challenge is, is that we're still waiting on critical information from the IRS on eligibility for the Inflation Reduction Act. Luckily, Liz, you and I had the chance to have a meeting with uh, the Department of Education and um, the Department of Treasury and the White House where we kind of talked about all these campuses that have these goals in mind, but they really need the rules to be laid out for us. And, you know, some of the rules are, for example, domestic content, like how much, uh, how much of the raw materials have to be sourced and um, procured inside of the United States. I mean, this is, these are fundamental questions before even the first solar panel can be bought. So um, right now we're working in real time. In the next 60 days, we should have some procurement parameters set around that. We should, the portal is open. 
the White House is ready. They are really gearing up for this to be a su- success. And GFOA and Kubo and all the public agencies would really like for this to be a gleaming success. So we're trying our best to make sure that they have the resources that they need to make the regulations as workable as possible for campuses across the country. I know you have the same experience I do where you have so many stakeholders who want all of the information right here, right now, so they can roll up their sleeves and get to work. And uh, often we're in the position of, of telling people to wait. First, you have to wait for the portal to open. We're excited that we can share the news that, that that's now available. Then we're waiting on clarification on various rules and regulations. But you're so right. And the one thing that was exciting in that meeting was hearing from so many different colleges and universities that are working on so many different projects and have so many different investments already underway that they're really excited to be able to tap into what became available in the IRA. So really great opportunities. And I know there's going to be more great stories out there. And I know organizations like GFOA and Nakubo will get that detailed compliance information out to members as soon as we have it available from the respective federal agencies. That's right. That's right. We're working our best. But we certainly, again, sound like a broken record here. We could use stories from the field. Uh, The more information and case studies that we have to be able to share with members of Congress who are influential in the administration's rollout of these rules are absolutely worth their weight in gold. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, while we're talking about rules, regulations, federal agencies, let's, uh, let's flip to an interesting, uh, <laughs> an interesting issue that developed, uh, last year, uh, related to the Financial Data Transparency Act. We're getting a bit into a weedy issue here, but I know you've been following this, frankly, I think closer than anyone in Washington. And, uh, can you share a little bit about what the FDTA did, may require, and where we are in this process? Colloquially, talking about it as sort of the goals of the greater federal legislation was, you know, we we take for granted the fact that stuff is in data standards for us. We, we appreciate the fact that now, hey, my kids uh, looking at colleges now, the SATs are now an online database. So, I mean, we are sort of, as we're sort of rolling forward, creatures rolling forward in this technological environment, what's important to note is that the federal government lags far, far behind in the rest of the retail world. And by that, what I mean is sometimes the federal government asks for information and when we submit that information, we do it in PDFs, we do it in Word documents, we do it in maybe hand keying, maybe we submit in Excel files. And the Congress kind of said, hey, we've had enough of that. It's time for us to standardize the data that the federal government is collecting. And so we said, okay, that's really interesting. We read into the bill, which means like lots and lots of data going into the federal government. They are very interested in standardizing that data. And then we got to page 203 and it said, oh, and oh, by the way, (laughs) municipal issuers have to do it as well. And we said, wait, what? We think it's great that everybody else has to do it, but what about us? So we are um, right now working through the Financial Data Transparency Act and what it means for 
issuers of municipal bonds. So colleges and universities that issue bonds to the market, according to this law, will now have required data standards that are associated with the information that they transmit to their investors. So by that, I mean, there will be data standards, there will be a standardized format, there will be a fundamental shift to the way that colleges and universities are transmitting information through the EMMA system, through the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. Now, it's not immediate, although it is law, there's nothing we can do retroactively right now. There are lots of holes that still have to be plugged. Like, for example, what is that technology? So don't buy what they're selling yet because the SEC has not determined what technology it is. Just make sure that you pay attention because through Nakubo, Liz is going to be issuing out Emily Brock statements on what are, what are those <laughs> regulations, what are the questions specifically that you need to answer, and how can we make this new federal law something that actually helps us and doesn't hurt us. Thanks, Emily. I know uh, with our Nakubo member listeners, many of them are grappling with the notion of data analytics broadly and generally on their campus and what it means to have data standards, what it means to have meaningful data, clean data, even the financial data uh, as it applies to enable them to help them with analytics. And we're operating in this world where we think artificial intelligence can simply mine all the beautiful data that's out there. But first, we have to get that beautiful data. And I know that the few members that I have spoken to about FDTA and their concerns about what gets reported to Emma have expressed doubts that that meeting the requirements of the law at this point with what we know about the data that's transmitted is impossible. Uh, or close to impossible. So uh, there's a lot of work ahead on on how to comply with this this new law. What is it that individual colleges and universities should be thinking about? Our our public institutions that are uh, reporting through Emma. When I say FDTA, what should it mean to them at this point? I think what it means is for the finance office that is specifically. Those folks who are relating to bond issuance, maybe your debt or your capital planning group and your accounting group, there's no longer a silo there. <laughs> you guys have to be working together. This is an opportunity for inside of your business offices to really kind of bridge the gap of, well, I do this and I do this. Well, right now what we're talking about is sort of imprinting technology across those that issue the debt and those who report the accounting figures. Now, I'd also say those who report, those who are responsible for continuing disclosures to their investors, keep in mind that it's not necessarily just financial information. Um, it could be official statements. It could be uh, um, any other voluntary disclosures that colleges and universities make to their investors. And we certainly encourage continuation of those voluntary disclosures. Now, so Again, there's a lot of red herrings in the title of this bill. It's called the Financial Data Transparency Act. Well, it's not just financial information. And I'd also argue we were transparent before it was cool. <laughs> we're like the OG transparent people. So for them to say, you know, what, you're against transparency? That's kind of a red herring there. We actually just want a smooth rollout. We want something that benefits issuers selfishly 
and their investors. Emily, I think that could be an entirely different podcast, how uh, the members of GFOA and the members of Nakubo would agree entirely on just how transparent we are with information and especially financial information that is available for the public to see. But uh, that's that's another conversation for <laughs> another day. So we've talked a little bit here about tax-exempt bonds, and uh, I, I don't think that we identified any um, impending risks in the coming months, except for what may happen with a sequestration process uh, as the government works through their budget. Uh, I, I do think that we need our members to really be thinking about how they're going to talk about ESG issues, especially in this political environment where we're in an election year now and politicians are going to test messages that resonate with their voters and, and how they feel or what their knee-jerk reaction is when you say those three simple letters, ESG. And uh, we talked about how folks like you and I, our team at Nakubo, are frankly waiting for fe federal regulatory agencies to come out with additional information so we can put additional resources into our members' hands to help them access those funds from the Inflation Reduction Act or even the IIJA. Also, we await what may happen next with FDTA. Emily, what did we miss? I think the only thing that we missed is we're halfway through this Congress. There is a whole year for us to go. And then what's especially exciting is the elections and what we might see next year. So we, along with our members, are very excited, of course, to think about what a new Congress looks like. What are the opportunities for the 119th? Um, this is a nice opportunity to educate the younger members of Congress um, as they prepare and get ready for the 119th. So this is a, a year of renewal. This is a year of <laughs> preparation. This is a year of education. And who better to do it than the colleges and um, university business officers. So I'm so happy to chat with you today. Oh, Emily, this has been great. We are headed into a year where at our annual meeting this summer, our theme is going to be Elevate Your Impact. And I think that you have hit on that message perfectly. Thank you for sharing your insights today with me, with our listeners, and thank you listeners for joining us. Uh, any resources we may have mentioned during our conversation today will be available on our Nakubo in Brief webpage. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. 